Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, Revelation, and we are in chapter 14. And let's, uh, let's pray. Let's ask for God's guidance and blessing on the preaching of his word. So please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us. First and foremost, in the person of your son, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And God, you have also left us your written will here and your word. And I pray that as we read your word, as we study, as we look into it in more detail, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us, that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us and do his job, which is to convince us, to uh, bring your word to bear into our hearts, to convict us of our sin. And God, we, we pray that, um, I pray that you fill me with your spirit as well to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim the words that you want me to speak, Lord, with humility, with fear and trembling, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you remember when we left off in, in uh, Revelation 13, we finished that section with the question that is asked in the, in the text, um, who is like the beast and who, can fi- and who can fight against it? I'm sorry, let me say that again. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And, uh, you know, we left having looked at chapters 12 and 13, and the whole idea was, was to leave with, with that open question, who is like the beast? Who can fight against the beast? And the idea was to go into our Advent season thinking about that question and just really feeling the, the, the burden of the limited control that the beast has been given, right? And so the beast is this, uh, the system at the time, it was, it was perhaps referring more specifically to Rome, to the Roman Empire. But the beast is this system that has been given certain authority and power and that is waging war against God's people. And we know that the beast is ultimately empowered by Satan, by the serpent, by the dragon, who is God's ultimate enemy and who has been fighting against God since, you know, long, long, long ago. Remember the image that John saw about this dragon waiting next to the woman, waiting for the, for the child that she was going to bear to be born so that he could devour this child. And so from, you know, from the beginning of time, the dragon, Satan, has been fighting, has been waging war against the lamb, against God, and against God's people, against God's elect. And so we left with that question, man, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast seems so powerful. The the, the corrupt system of this world just seems so powerful. Waging war against the sinful system of this world just seems so hopeless sometimes. 
we, such a, a small group as the church, sometimes it feels, man, is this, is this even a, a, a real war? Do we, do we even have a chance at winning this, this battle? And it says there that the beast actually had been given to wage war against God's people and to conquer them. Now, the book of Revelation has been talking about conquering over and over and over. And this is the only instance where it says that the beast was given authority to conquer God's people. And so at, at probably the lowest point in the book of Revelation, we ask the question, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And then what turned out to be a longer uh, break than, than, than we had planned, like I said, now this reveals the answer to this question in chapter 14. Notice how chapter 14 opens, right? So chapters 12 and, and, and 13 have talked about the dragon, the beast, the image of the beast, and how powerful they are. But then look at the answer to this question. John says in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So this is the answer. Who can fight against the beast? Well, guess who I saw standing on Mount Zion getting ready for battle. I, I, I did not plan on this and therefore I don't remember the reference really well. But remember in the Lord of the Rings when uh, I think it's Minas Tirith or one of those cities that is getting overtaken completely, and then all of a sudden you see Gandalf coming with the, with the army. Am I getting that reference correct? Okay, thank you, thank you. And, and, and then Gandalf comes with the army, with the, with the writers of, of Rohan. One of the, sorry, my Lord of the Rings references are, are very, uh, <laughs> I need to refresh them. But it's, it's kind of that feel, right? The city is being defeated. The beast is conquering. The beast is overpowering. But then you see the lamb standing on Mount Zion with his army ready to come and defeat the beast. And so there is hope. There is a lot of hope because the lamb has already defeated the dragon. And so we continue reading in verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. <clears throat> and in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
She who made all nations drink the wine of of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. This is the word of God. So we find this army, we find this, uh, the lamb with his army, the 144,000. And, and we talked about these people already. We, uh, we concluded that these, well, I, I don't know that we, you know, one concluded like, 100%, but the, the, I guess what I mean, I don't know how well I explained it or, or how well I just in my mind understand it, but uh, hopefully today we will conclude that these people, the 144,000, are God's people, are God's elect, are God's people throughout the ages, are the church, the church of God. And so, um, This is an interesting section, right? Because first we see Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, according you know, to, to, the, to the, uh, the author of, of Hebrews, is this heavenly reality, is, is the place of God's, inhabit, God's yeah, inhabitants. And, and that's also what we read in Psalm 2, right? It's, it is on Mount Zion that Jesus is there waiting to wage war against his enemies. But in Hebrews 12 or 13, I think, we read that we, the church, we have come to Mount Zion. So this is one of those concepts that, you, that makes you wonder, okay, so are we already in Mount Zion or not yet? And I think the answer is yes, both, both yes and no. I mean, we are not in heaven. We're not in the presence of God yet. So part of this passage is, is quite not there yet. But at the same time, the author of Hebrews says, we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. So this passage is speaking us of some things that we believers already enjoy, some blessings that we already enjoy, some of the position that we already have, but at the same time, it's speaking of heavenly realities. And now, one thing that I, that I, that the more I look into the book of Revelation, I've, I've come to realize is that I don't think that the main purpose of the book of Revelation is to give us this uh, seer-like, perfect timeline of future events. You know, I'm not saying that it doesn't 
prophesy about future events. I'm not saying that it doesn't describe things about future events. But I think that the problem is that sometimes we expect the book of Revelation to have a perfect, exact timeline of future events. And then we start trying to identify, oh, okay, so the beast, you know, it's this 666. And so, you know, it must be Bill Gates. And then, you know, <laughs> and sorry, I, you know, I just made that up. But the thing is, with the problem is we try to assign a meaning and a, or not a meaning. We try to assign a, a, uh, a future timeline to every single one of these things. But I think that what the book of Revelation is doing, it is prophesying spiritual truths about the church, about God's people, about God's purposes in this world. So that the believers who are reading it, whether it be those to whom it was originally written or those who are reading it afterwards, they can identify these realities in their own context and they can be encouraged to wage war against the beast. Because whereas I do not discard the possibility that the beast, the ultimate beast might be a you know, an, an specific person or human being, I also believe that the beast and the, and, and the image of the beast in Babylon and all of those things are spiritual realities that we see throughout the ages, throughout the age of the church. And so all of that to say, we're here in chapter 14 and we see the army of the lamb. We see the 144,000 and they are getting ready to wage war against the beast. But at the same time, we see that they are already in heaven. Look at this in verse two, it says, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So these, these people singing this new song, these 144,000 are singing this song in heaven, in the presence of God. And then it also says, these are the ones that have been redeemed from the earth. So they are clearly in heaven and they are not in, uh, uh, on the earth. Uh, and then they are described as the first fruits for God and for the lamb. So what is the point of all of this? Well, I think that the point is stated in verse 12. And this is ultimately my point in in. in in this sermon, the point that I want us to, to learn to see is in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So I believe that the point of this passage, I believe that the point of the book of Revelation is a call to endurance for God's people. I think that the book of Revelation, think about it. It opens with the seven letters to the churches and each one of the churches is called to conquer. And then the book of Revelation ends with the new Jerusalem and those who have conquered are seated or are, you know, are in the new Jerusalem in the presence of God. And so I think that everything in between the first few chapters and the last chapter of the book of Revelation is a call to conquer and a call to endurance for God's people. 
And so notice, I, I want to focus on the description of this army. Again, remember that these 144,000 are God's elect. They are God's people through the ages. Remember that even though first it is portrayed as a, as a specific number, right, 144,000, that vision is, is interpreted in verse 7. And John, instead of seeing, he hears 144,000 people, but then when he looks, he sees that it is a multitude. It is an innumerable multitude. And they are all worshiping God. And it's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and, and people. And so remember, this number, 144,000, seems to be symbolic. Seems to be a number of completeness that is pointing to all of, all of God's people that have been chosen. All of God's people that have received his seal. And so notice, notice the things describing God's people. And the reason why I want to mention this is because if you, if you are God's people, if you are one of those 144,000, if you belong to him, these things should be true about you and about me. These things should be true about us. And so the first thing that we see is that they belong to God and therefore are secure. They belong to God and they are secure. Notice this. The beast has already sealed his people the beast has already uh, given the mark, his mark to, to his people. But notice the contrast here. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion, verse 1, stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name on his father's name written on their foreheads. So the beast has his counterfeit seal and he puts his mark on his followers' forehead. But Jesus has the actual, the good seal. And that is the one that his followers have on their forehead. And so this seal means that these people belong to God. We belong to God. We, we are sealed for him. And this is extremely good news. Because if we are his, it means that he's never going to let go of us. It means that he's never going to lose us. He sealed 144,000. How many people do we see in heaven celebrating other than, you know, a multitude, but 144,000. He sealed 144,000. He saved 144,000. Not a single one that God has elected will be lost. And this should give us courage, right? Especially if you're struggling with your, with your assurance of salvation, especially if you're struggling and saying, well, I don't know, you know, everything that's going on in this world, I, I just don't know if, well, number one, maybe I don't know that God can really hold on to me. Or I don't know that I can hold on to God. But the good news here is that if you believe in him, you have received his seal. You belong to him. He will not lose you. Notice these passages in, in John, John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. Notice what Jesus says. In John 10, 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. In John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you have received the seal of God, you belong to him. You don't have to fear separation from God. You don't have to fear being lost in the last day. You don't have to fear death. Because Jesus will not lose a single one that the Father has given him. He sealed 144. He saved 144,000. Now, another thing about these 144,000 is that they are redeemed from the earth. Right? We see in... uh, In in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, no one could learn that song except the 144 who had been redeemed from the earth. And then later we read, these have been redeemed from from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So these 144,000 are the first fruits of this harvest. And so notice how John is now transitioning uh, uh, images. He's been he's been using the image of war, but now he is going to transition, and he's going to start talking about the harvest. He's going to start using the image of the harvest, and so these one hundred forty four thousand they are an army, but they are also the first fruits of God's harvest, and so this is alluding to the second coming of Christ. This is alluding to to the parousia, to Jesus' return, to the Lord's day. When he returns, he will harvest the earth. And those who are his elect, those who are with the 144,000, remember this is a symbolic number. It doesn't mean that only 144,000 people will be saved. But these, or, or this army of people, they are the first fruits. They are the ones who will be redeemed from the earth so that then, God's wrath and judgment can go on and destroy those who continue in their unrepentance. And so for them, for the 144, they are the first fruits. They are God's, they are an offering to God. And the language of revelation has been implying over and over and over that many of these, if not all of them, have experienced death because of their faith in Christ. They have experienced death because of their witness to the truth of God. So the first fruits enjoy God's protection from his wrath. But those who are not God's, those who are not, um, those who are not the first fruits, they are also harvested. But the image turns from first fruits into a wine press and they are crushed under God's wrath. So they, these, these people are redeemed from the earth. They belong to God. Now, another thing about these 144,000 is that they worship God. 
They are singing this song. This is a new song that no one has learned except for them. And they are singing to God. And, and I don't want to stay here for a long time because we've talked about this multiple times. The book of Revelation is loaded with passages about people worshiping God, about angels worshiping God, about the four creatures worshiping God, the 24 elders worshiping God. I think the point should be clear by now that God is worthy of all of our worship and that those who have been saved worship God. And the point here is, if you struggle to worship God, if you don't feel like worshiping God, if you don't feel like singing to God, then I think that there's a serious heart issue that you need to check. Because those who have experienced God's salvation, they sing to Him. They cannot help but sing to Him because of His great salvation. So again, I said I didn't want to spend a lot of time here. So moving on. Uh, notice that these, these people, this army, the, the Lamb's army, they are blameless. They are blameless. And now we come to a, to a passage that has been misunderstood quite a bit. In verse 4, it says that these who have not, or it says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So, this is not saying, well, let me tell you what I think it's saying before I say what, it, what it, I think it's not saying. Remember that John is using uh, a lot of biblical imagery. Some people have argued that each single verse in Revelation has a quotation from the Old Testament or an, or an allusion to the Old Testament. I, I don't know about that. I haven't gone and confirmed it. But these 144,000 are an army. And one of the things, one of the commandments that God gave his people under the old covenant is that whenever they were getting ready for war, whenever they were deployed for war, they were supposed to remain ceremonially clean. And that ceremonial cleanliness meant that they, would not, that they wouldn't have any sexual relations, that if they had any emissions, that they had to leave the camp, and that if they went to the bathroom, they had to go outside of the camp and, and bury it and come back to the camp. It, they, there were a lot of rules for when they were deployed. And disobeying these rules, introducing uncleanliness to the camp could cost them the battle. So, for example, in, uh, uh, when David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, when he sends him back to his house, David is expecting him to go in and sleep with his wife. But Uriah, being a righteous Israelite, or, well, he was a, he was a Hittite, but being a righteous, you know, grafted into the people of Israel, he knew that he was not supposed to go into his home. He knew that had he gone into his home, he would have been ceremonially clean and he could have cost the victory to the army of God. And then when we see David, this is actually earlier, when David is being, per, is being uh, chased by Saul, and when he enters into the temple and he wants to eat the bread, the holy bread, the thing that the priest asks him is, well, are your men clean? And he says, yes, none of them have been with a woman for a while, or basically ever since we've been on this campaign. 
So it was known, it was very clear for them that whenever they went to war, they had to stay away from women. They had to stay away from relations. Not because, not because sex is sinful. Not because, you know, with sex within marriage, not because it is sinful or bad. But it was under the old covenant, the rule that God had given them so that they would understand that in order to fight God's battle, they were supposed to remain pure. They were supposed to remain clean. So what is the point for us? And does it mean that, you know, we just have to abstain because, you know, we're waging war and, and, and we are part of God's army, so we should just abstain forever? No. No, that's not. I don't think that that is the application. Remember that all of these ceremonial laws of cleanliness were fulfilled when Jesus came and when, and when he died on the cross. And they are not completely, you know, destroyed and non, non-applicable, but rather they are reinterpreted because of the work of Christ. And so, whereas it doesn't mean that we can't have sex, it does mean that we should abstain from sexual immorality. And this point is very clearly emphasized throughout the book of Revelation. At the end of the book of Revelation, when it's actually a passage that we've read in our, in our, in our uh, closing benediction, when Jesus says, I am, you know, I, I have come, and, and, and the bride comes and, and says, come. And then it says, but those who continue, this is a, a terrible paraphrase, I'm sorry, but those who continue in sexual immorality will be outside, outside of the new Jerusalem. Sexual immorality, sin against God, impurity against God is a huge deal for him. So while it doesn't mean that we abstain from sex within marriage, it does mean that the army of God is supposed to abstain from sexual immorality. And this is also so important because Babylon, the one that we're about to see, is all about passion and sexual immorality. It's all it promotes, but God's people are undefiled and they are ceremonially clean for battle. And one important implication, and, and I, cannot, I cannot say this for sure, I am, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I was wondering, just like being ceremonially unclean could cost the people of Israel a battle. They could lose a battle because they were ceremonially unclean. Could it be that the church in America is doing so poorly because we have allowed sexual immorality to thrive among us? Could it be that that we are not keeping ourselves ceremonially clean and therefore the church doesn't seem to be making a lot of progress here? And again, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I, I seriously don't know. But I do wonder about this. Because God cares about his army, about his people being pure, being clean. Now, there is, uh, there, there's more things, right? These follow the lamb wherever he goes. So we, we follow Jesus wherever he goes. We go after him. <coughs> they have been redeemed from mankind. They are the first fruits of the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. The dragon is the father of lies. The beast is just lying all the time. 
the image of the beast or the second beast is actually causing everyone to worship the beast. And the lie there is that the beast is claiming for itself the worship that only belongs to God. And that is the worst lie ever. Because the only one that deserves our worship is God. But the people of God, the army of God, they are not deceived by the lie of the beast and of the dragon. The people of God are all about truth. The people of God are blameless. We do not participate in the lies of the world. We do not participate in the lie of the beast, of giving worship to the beast or, or indulging with Babylon. We are supposed to be blameless. The lie of worshiping the beast should never be found in our mouth. <laughs> And now I think that this gives us some balance because earlier I said, if you question your salvation, if you're not feeling sure, well, know that those who are sealed, God will never let go. God will never lose. But when you read verses four and five, I think that that should be a good, a good way of checking yourself and saying, well, am I really sealed? You know, if I'm sealed, I know that I'm secure because he will never let me go. But do I engage and indulge in sexual immorality? Do I enjoy, do I delight myself in sin, in lying? Do I delight in Babylon, in the system of this world? Do I give my worship to the beast by putting all of my trust and confidence in, in the government, in, in, in whatever it is? that is taking the place of God. And if that is the case, then I think you have to do some serious thinking and say, well, am I among God's 144,000? And if that is the case, I think that these three warnings that the angels give are very appropriate for all of us, really. These are the warnings that, that the angels give. And these are ultimately, I believe, this is the ammunition for God's army. This is the message that we proclaim to a dying world. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And so he says, or actually not him, there are three angels and each one of them gives a warning, a message. And so the first one says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of, this ju of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the first warning, the first message is fear God, give him glory in worshiping. God's judgment is coming. I, I don't necessarily believe that these angels will come at the very, very end of time, right before the, the second coming of Christ, because they're not really revealing anything new. This is a message that, that the church and the people of God should know, should have known for ages. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has 
Come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is a message that we, the church, should proclaim to all people. Fear God. Give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. God is going to judge this world. God is going to judge those who continue in unrepentance. And therefore, everyone owes him fear and glory. And we, everyone, every creature in heaven and, and, and on earth and, and everywhere else, we ought to worship him because he is the creator. So some people may ask, well, so, but why do we have to worship God? Like, what's the deal? Well, because he created you and he created everything else. We don't need any other reason to worship him. We have many other reasons to worship him, but we don't need any other reason to worship him other than the fact that he is the creator and we are not. No one gets to say, well, you know, I, he created me, but I'm just going to do my own thing and I'm going to go worship a different God or a different thing or I'm going to worship myself. No, that would be foolish. Because only God is the creator and he is the only one that deserves our worship. And because he is coming in judgment against those who do not worship him, people should fear God and should give him glory. The second warning is fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So John is just barely introducing us to, to Babylon. There's going to be a whole lot more about Babylon in, in chapter 18. But here we see that Babylon, this system of passion and sexual immorality, this system of luxury and, and covetousness and, and uh, you know, just enjoying life at its max and taking everything at the expense of others. This system is bankrupt. This system is fallen. Right? I don't think that the angel is saying that Babylon has already fallen. I think Babylon is still going on. But the point is that Babylon is as good as dead. Babylon is as good as done. It's already been proven bankrupt. And so if Babylon is bankrupt, why on earth would we invest our money and our time, and our resources, and everything in it. It's already bankrupt. It's dead. It's destroyed. It's down. I mean, we can look out there and see, no, it's alive and well. Yes, right now it's thriving. But because of the victory of the Lamb, Babylon has fallen. Babylon is as good as dead. And therefore, believers are called, we're going to see in verse 18, are called to flee from Babylon. Believers are called to wage war against the beast and against the image of the beast, but believers are also called to flee from Babylon and her sexual immorality and her passion and, and her uh, luxuries and everything that Babylon, that this world has to offer. And then the last, the last angel, the, the, the third angel, he has a sobering message. He has a really, a really terrible message. He says, 
If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine. Notice that Babylon gives them to drink the wine of passion and sexual immorality. Well, God has another wine. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is a horrible image. This is an image that should make us cry. But now, you know, some, some of us might be tempted to say, but, but why, God? Like, you know, you're a merciful God. You're a loving God. Why? Why? Well, I have, I have two, two responses to, to that. Well, one of them is, you have been given this message ahead of time. This has not happened yet. So God in his mercy is warning you. He has sent his army of 144,000. He has sent his two witnesses to proclaim the good news of the gospel. To say, fear God, glorify him. Worship him for he created everything. Flee Babylon for Babylon is already destroyed. Do not worship the beast because you will experience God's wrath if you continue in your own repentance. And so God is so merciful that whenever he's about to bring judgment, he warns people. God was so merciful that instead of just going and obliterating Nineveh, he sent Jonah. That's why Jonah was so upset because he knew that if, if Nineveh was given an opportunity, they would repent. He knew that God was merciful. That's why he was so angry. Well, God is so merciful that he is warning people of his wrath and of his judgment before it happens. And secondly, for those who continue in their unrepentance, God has already provided an escape from his wrath. God has already poured his wrath full force on his son, Jesus. He has already provided the way of escape. He has already said, believe in, in, in Jesus, trust in him. He died for our sins. He carried God's wrath upon himself on our behalf. And so, don't you think that someone that continues to reject Jesus, who has already experienced God's wrath, deserves this kind of punishment? I mean, let's be, let's be clear. All of us deserved this punishment because we didn't give him glory, because we didn't worship him as our creator. But when he, in his mercy and his love, sent his son Jesus while we were still sinners and he died for us, and we believed in him, we receive his seal and we are protected from his wrath. 
not because of how good we are, not because of how amazing we are or how smart we are, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross. But when someone continues to reject and spit in Jesus' face and reject God's solution to their problem, then there's nothing else left for them but the wrath, full measure wrath of God. And this is a terrible thing. And that's why this is the message that we need to proclaim to a world that is lost. This is our ammunition. We wage war against the beast, against the image of the beast, but we don't wage war in a, in a worldly kind of way. We don't wage war, you know, with swords or guns or, or anything else that we can come up with. The way that we wage war against the beast is by proclaiming the eternal gospel. The way that we wage war against the beast is by snatching people away from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's how we wage war against the beast. And so this message, the message of seeing the lamb on Mount Zion ready for battle with his elect, with his 144,000, this message of warning from these angels, the purpose of this message and ultimately the purpose of the book of Revelation is this. Here, verse 14, verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is a call for our endurance. This is a call for us to see the world that is dying, that is hostile to God, that is rebelling against God and remain faithful to Christ. Obey his commands, keep his commandments, be faithful to Jesus. Do not give in, do not worship the beast, do not engage in the sexual immorality of Babylon. Remain faithful, endure until the end. To the one who conquers, I will fill in the blank. To the one who conquers, I will, you know, let him sit next to me and rule and I will give him uh, the, the white stone and I can remember all of the promises that he makes to the one who conquers. Brothers and sisters, this is a call for us to endure, to remain faithful, to remain, to remain obedient to Christ. And here's the final word of of hope, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So we have this assurance, this hope. If we have remained faithful, if we have labored for the Lord, if we, are, if we have received his seal, we don't have anything to fear. In fact, it is blessed to die for his sake. It is a blessed thing to die bearing witness to Christ. And as we have argued before, that is how the beast is defeated. Through the faithful death of Christ's people. Just like Jesus defeated the dragon through his death, we continue to wage war against the beast with our sacrificial death, with our sacrificial giving up of our lives for the gospel. Let's pray.
God, we thank you. We thank you for this message of endurance. We really need these words. When it looks like the beast is conquering, that the beast is dominating, that the spirit of Babylon is so powerful and present, and when it feels like we are such a small group of people, when it feels like we have so little influence, God, We look on Mount Zion with hope because we see ourselves there lined up for battle with our general, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb. And we are encouraged to remain firm in this battle, to remain firm in this war, to remain pure, to remain ceremonially clean, to flee Babylon, to flee sin and the lies of the beast, Lord. Help us to use this ammunition that we have been given, Lord. Help us to proclaim this eternal gospel, to call people to repentance. It seems like such a, such a strong message, but it is, a, it is a, an eternal gospel. It is a faithful message. And if we truly love people, we will warn them about the judgment to come. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who has taken your wrath full force upon him on our behalf. And we thank you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.